Let's pray. Father, uh, as we gather tonight around your word, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In your bulletin, and maybe up on the screen, you're going to, I don't know if it's on the screen or not, the words, probably not, inside your worship folder is uh, my text for this evening, uh, John chapter 20, if you've got Bibles, it's verses 24 to 29, and this is the assigned gospel reading for this week, the second Sunday after Easter, or in Easter, it says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, and I think most of you understand that that means twin in the Greek, we don't know whose twin he was. Could have had a woman twin, for all we know. Some people have actually said that he was the twin to Matthew. But I don't know. He was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the Lord, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. That's our text. Now, what I want us to do this evening... I want us to correct a problem that has been plaguing the church for years. It's a problem that surrounds the issue of doubt. Now, actually, doubt is not the problem. What the problem is, is how the church typically handles doubt. Now, believe it or not, most of the time, we just kind of try to take care of it with uh, what I would call bumper sticker theology. Maybe you've seen this on the back of a car someplace. It says, the Bible says it. I believe it, that settles it. You ever seen that one? Now, that may sound pretty good to church folks, uh, but it, I'll tell you one thing, it frustrates the heck out of non-believers. It really frustrates doubting people. It frustrates them because they know Christians just like you, they know Christians just like me, and they've got some of the same hang-ups, they've got some of the same questions, they have some of the same doubts, and they know you got them too. But see, honest doubters are actually looking for answers, so when they're confronted with kind of a take-it-or-leave-it theology, or take-it-or-leave-it mentality from Christians, they normally are kind of turned off by that, and that's what keeps some of them from ever coming back to church. But friends, I want to tell you something. Every Christ-following church, in fact, every Christ-follower there is, ought to be a safe place where people with doubts can come and share them with one another. I think the author, Lee Strobel, got it right when he said there are really only three different kinds of people in the church. There are those people who are struggling with doubt right now. I won't ask you to raise your hand. If you're struggling with some sort of doubt right now. He said the second kind are those people who have no doubts right now, but are probably going to have some later. And he said the third group are those who have no doubts now, and they never will have them because basically they are brain dead. <laughs> now, if you're serious about your faith, then there's going to come a time when you have some unanswered questions about circumstances. You're going to have some unanswered questions about the situation in this world uh, or about why God sometimes never seems to be around when you need him or answer your questions when you ask him. 
Now, I want you to know that doubt does not mean you've lost your faith. It simply means that you're trying to figure out how your faith actually works in this crazy world, this crazy sinful world that you and I live in. So instead of being afraid of doubt, instead of being afraid that even mention doubt in the context of the church, why don't we as a church, why don't we as Christ followers use it and let God make us stronger in our faith and draw us closer to him? Now, a number of years ago, I remember reading a story about a lady who was watching a butterfly come out of a cocoon. And she watched for quite some time and watched that butterfly really struggling to get out of the cocoon. It finally bothered her so much that she went and she got a small little knife and picked up the cocoon and very carefully cut along there to make it easier for the butterfly to get out. Now, this lady discovered too late that the struggle to get out of the cocoon was what it takes to make the butterfly's wings strong enough to fly. And so when it got out, it kind of flew a little bit and then crashed and burned and died. Have you ever thought that God does that with you? That, that God either uses doubt or allows doubt to creep into your life, uh, that you, you, he either forces or allows us to struggle in different situations, not because he wants us to fail, not because he wants to see his people crash and burn, but because he wants to see us actually spread our wings and learn to fly. Now, this may sound paradoxical, but I, I, I really believe it's true. And the one place doubters ought to feel most secure and most comfortable would be right here in the body of Christ. And I'm going to tell you why I believe this. It, it's in the book of Jude. It's probably a book that everybody should read because it's a short, one of the shortest ones in the Bible. But a lot of people, you know, by the way, you ought to read this whole book. This is, this is bonus. You ought to read this. You know why? Because you're going to feel kind of funny if you ever get to heaven and Haggai walks up and says, do you ever read my book? You go, who? <laughs> but Jude's pretty easy. Habakkuk, a little bit more difficult. But in Jude... Chapter 1, and I think it's verse 22, uh, there's an interesting little verse, and it says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Isn't that interesting? The Bible says we need to extend mercy to those people who doubt. In other words, please don't kick me when I'm down. Help me up, point me in the right direction so that I can actually find answers. And, and that's what I hope to be able to do tonight, because I want to give you three, I, I say, biblical uh, steps to help you survive those times of doubt. Because after all, some of you are going through them now. Some of you will go through them later. And the rest of you brain dead folks, I'm not sure what we're going to do for you. But maybe you'll, you'll pick up something. Here's the very first thing I think we need to learn. And that is just plain simple. Acknowledge our doubts. You know, if you've grown up in the church, you may have felt some pressure sometimes to either ignore your doubts or pretend that they're not there, or at least keep them hidden and never mention to anybody in a little small group or in a Bible study, or God forbid ever mention to the pastor that you have any doubts. But do that long enough, and those doubts are going to come around and bite you. There'll always be a weak spot in your faith. So you've got to learn to deal with those nagging little doubts. Now, I know that there's probably some of you here tonight already that are that feel that acknowledging your doubts would automatically disqualify you from serving in God's kingdom, or at the very least, it, it, it would make you less spiritual than those other spiritual folks that are sitting in front of you or behind you or 
next to you and, and don't look at him. But you know that there was actually a time in Billy Graham's life when he questioned the truthfulness of the Bible? Did you know that? His faith was absolutely shaken to the core, and he began to have some serious doubts whether this book was really true. So what did he do? Well, he acknowledged his doubts, he got some help from other Christ followers, and he trusted God, and of course the rest, as we say, is history. See, before we can feel comfortable about acknowledging our doubts, maybe we need to know something a little bit about doubt itself. And believe me, I'm going to get to Thomas yet. Don't worry. Now, some people actually think doubt is one of those unforgivable sins, but get rid of that thought. And you're not going to lose your salvation just because there are some things you don't understand. Uh, that you have questions about the Bible. I mean, we've all got them. Believe me, I still, every once in a while, come across something in the Bible. I look at it and I go, Really? Really? I mean, doubt is not the same as unbelief. I mean, unbelief is an absolute willful uh, decision. It's a deliberate decision to stand against the truth. But doubt is not necessarily an unhealthy condition. I mean, for far too long we have been told, because we hear these sermons all the time about doubting Thomas. Don't want to be like doubting Thomas. He was a bad guy. He was doubting Jesus. You don't want to doubt like Thomas. You'll probably go to hell. But I tell you, friends, if, if doubt is handled properly, it can be a springboard for a deeper and stronger faith than you've ever experienced. So what is doubt? Well, basically, it just means to be undecided. You haven't made up your mind about it. You're wavering between two decisions. Now, honest doubters, I will tell you, actually look for answers. Uh, cynics, well, they, they ask questions, but they only ask questions to get reactions out of you doubters. Honest doubters are never satisfied with their current level of belief, but cynics, oh, they revel in their unbelief. And honest doubters investigate to find the answer, but cynics never look for the answer because they've actually got their mind all made up. One thing you need to understand as we get into Thomas tonight, though, friends, is that God welcomes honest doubt. I mean, if he didn't welcome honest doubt, he wouldn't have put it in the Bible that we have to show mercy to those people who doubt. And guess who those people are? I'm looking at them. You're looking at one. We can look over there. There's a whole bunch of them. But have you ever wondered what causes your bout with doubt? And there are a lot of reasons why we sometimes get into Scripture and we think about God and we wonder a little bit. One of them is an intellectual reason for doubt. I mean, for example... Maybe you've been told, ever since you were a little kid, you went through confirmation, maybe like me, I went from kindergarten through college in Lutheran school, Lutheran high school, Lutheran college, and you've heard all of these promises that God always answers your prayer, but then one day, lo and behold, you find yourself with a difficult time because you're, it almost seems as if God isn't even listening to your prayers anymore. And so you have a little bout with doubt. Also, a category concerns your emotions. Yeah, I mean, if you base your entire faith on feelings, I, I tell you, you're in for a long, bumpy road. I mean, if your faith is all wrapped up in some sort of a, I don't know, an emotional high you get at a fishing retreat, I guess I can use that. Or when you go to some conference and you got some pastor who just you all worked up and all excited and the music is great and you're dancing around you and say, man, it's a mountaintop experience. But I tell you, when I was ordained, my son wrote a song for me. And I told you it should be a little jazzy. 
there's a line in that song, though. It says, it's great to be on the mountaintop, but guess what? Work is done in the valleys. You can't live forever going from one high to another high to another high. I mean, you'll, when, when that finally droops, so will your faith. But we also know that doubt can be the result of a willful decision. If you're a believer and you know what God says about a certain decision you need to make, but you choose to do it your own way, then doubt will always be your constant companion. Let's go back to the story here of Thomas. Let's look at Thomas's decision. In verse 25, it says, The other disciples had just told him, We've seen the Lord... But now, guess what? Thomas makes a willful decision. He says, I will not believe, what? Until or unless I see and I touch. So Thomas right here is doing this first step. He's acknowledging his doubt. And he says, you guys may believe this. But I'm not going to believe until I actually see it and feel it. So that's the very first thing. Just, just acknowledge your doubt. Admit it. You've got a doubt. But then second, turn to God for help. Now, when most people think about doubt, whose name almost automatically pops up? Thomas. Sure. Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Good old doubting Thomas. But you know, he's not the only one in the Bible. Do you know that? Do you remember Abraham's wife doubting Sarah? Remember her? God told her she's going to have a baby in her old age, and she's laughing. She said, oh, how can an old woman have a baby when they're this old? She doubted God's word. How about doubting Moses? Did you ever read his story? I mean, he was told to go to Egypt to free the Israelites, but he doubted his ability, and he argued with God, and basically told God, go find somebody else. Or what about doubting Gideon? You ever read his story? I mean, Gideon, who was promised that he would help the people fight against the Midianites, so he demands a sign from God as proof that this is going to happen, and then he demands another sign to prove that the first sign is a good sign. Now, what about doubting Elijah? I mean, he goes up there and battles the king, and he brings down fire from heaven and that kind of dueling thing with the prophets of Baal. And then some woman gets cranky with him, Jezebel, and he runs for the hills and hides and says, Oh, poor me, I'm the only one left. What about doubting Jeremiah? You probably read his story. He was told to speak a word of prophecy uh, of God to the king, but he said, Oh, I'm just a young boy. Or how about John the Doubting Baptist? You all heard about him, huh? He saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus. He heard a voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But suddenly he's thrown into prison. And guess what? He sends word to Jesus and said, Are you really the Messiah or should we be looking for somebody else? You know, one of my favorite doubters is found in Mark 9. I love this story. This is about a guy who has a son who is possessed by an evil spirit. And, and so he brings the boy to Jesus and asks for help. Now, this is a smart man. He's already acknowledged his problem, and now he's going to go seek some help here. And he goes and he, and he, he uh, tells Jesus about it. He talks about the condition of the boy, and then he says to Jesus, Do something if you can. But wouldn't you like to see a video of this? I can just imagine Jesus smiling, going, if, if, 
If I can do something about it, anything is possible if this person believes. And then comes one of the most wonderful statements in the whole Bible. Lord, I believe. You know how that ends? But help my unbelief. I do believe, but help me not to doubt. Oh, I love that. I don't even know how many times I've said that. It's the way I feel a lot. I, I really do believe, but, oh man, God, help me not to doubt this. I mean, that's the kind of response God is looking for in the life of a doubter. I mean, you may still have some unresolved doubts, but you've got enough faith to come to God for the answer. So what about Thomas? How did he handle his doubt? He acknowledged it. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I see something. Well, in verse 24, we're told that when Jesus appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. Well, where was he? The answer is, I don't know. I mean, he may have just been out because he was afraid that if he got together with a whole bunch of other disciples, maybe the Romans or somebody would come and catch them all and, and, and crucify them too. But I wonder if Thomas might not have been out there just weeping his eyes out and wonder what the heck happened. Because when Jesus told the disciples one time in one of his three passion predictions, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, Thomas says, hey, I'll go with you and I'll die with you. That's not a doubting man. That's a man of faith. I mean, he's the same guy that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Thomas says, you know, I don't know where you're going. I'll go with you. And then Jesus says, you know, I go ahead to prepare a place for you. But maybe he was just sad that day. He wasn't going to be there. But regardless of what his reason was for being gone, he missed the opportunity to see the Lord, and it resulted in this doubt. But you know, here is really the exciting part of the story. Do you know the Bible's exciting? Or are you just looking at me like, when's he going to finish? No, okay. it's exciting. It's exciting. He acknowledges his doubts and he's ready to get some help. Verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And guess what? Here's Thomas right with them, still struggling with his doubts. But at least he's willing to put himself in a position where those doubts can be taken care of. And I want you to notice something. Where, where is the position that he's in? He's in a community of believers. I mean, I love that image. Thomas didn't cut and run when he had doubts. And when he did show up, they said, there's nothing in Scripture that says that the disciples condemned him and said, oh, there's doubting Thomas. I mean, instead of fear and judgment, the community of faith, the church, fellow Christ followers, became a place where doubt could be confronted and handled. I mean, what a beautiful picture of what a church can be like. So we're going to acknowledge our doubts and we're going to turn to God for help. But third, we're going to receive what God offers us. Now, what did God offer? I mean, what was it that Thomas needed most in his life at this time? I'll tell you what, he needed some comfort. He needed some reassurance. I mean, he needed some proof. Now, just put yourself in the place, this place. Everybody believed, but you still doubted. You really, really want to believe that Jesus rose, but you just can't. Why? There's just some nagging doubts. After all, 
Name ten people who've risen from the grave after three days in the last several centuries. I don't know very many. Well, I know one. James says people like Thomas are like double-minded people. They get tossed back and forth like the waves when the wind blows. Uh, It's a feeling of kind of chaos and turmoil. And if you've ever been through some sort of a doubt or some sort of a struggle, you probably know exactly what that feels like. So what you need then is exactly what Jesus gave to Thomas. It's in verse 26. Peace be with you. See, when everything else around you is just piles of chaos... What is Jesus come giving us? Peace. Elsewhere in the Bible it says, My peace I leave with you, not like the world gives, but my peace, the peace that passes all over understanding. Now, do you know what I like best about those words? It's what Jesus didn't say. Notice he didn't say, Oh, Thomas, I can't believe you, you doubted me. Now, he didn't say, Oh, Thomas, man, I'm, I'm really, you hurt me. Man, you hurt me because you didn't believe like these other disciples. Jesus didn't shame him. He didn't judge him. He didn't condemn him. He simply gave Thomas what he needed. Comfort and peace. And that's what Thomas needed on the inside. And believe me, that's what some of us need different times. I can't begin to tell you the number of people that I've talked to over the years who have been going through turmoil and doubt, and sometimes even serious doubt about their faith, or serious doubt about the, you know, whether prayer really works or where God really is. And you tell them, you know, how many times Jesus says in the Bible, peace be with you. And just see people. And know the peace of God passes all human understanding. But Jesus did something for his outside, too. Remember? He says, okay, come on, touch. Put your fingers where the holes are. Put your hand over here where they speared me. Because that's why what Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see and I touch. And as a result of Jesus responding to Thomas's doubt with grace and patience, what happened? Thomas makes one of the most profound confessions of faith you will find in the Bible. My Lord and my God. His whole life was radically changed forever. Now, tradition tells us that Thomas heads off to India. And he gives his life sharing the good news of freedom found in relationship with Jesus the Christ. And Thomas knew what it was like to have great doubt, but he also knew what it was like to have great faith. And you see, he really wasn't a doubter. He just had to experience it himself. To use his own eyes to be sure of what he wanted so that he could commit his life to it. And friends, you know something? That's exactly what he wants for everybody who is here tonight. That's exactly what he wants for me. He wants to show up behind the closed doors of your life and say, Did you see how I died for you? It's amazing how many people can forget that in one week. I mean, last week when the place is decorated and you've got lilies all over the place and you're saying, I know that my Redeemer lives and Christ the Lord is risen today. But then it's pretty easy to kind of go back to normal behind our closed doors. But he says, come on. See, I died for you. 
And then he calls on you to live for him, to live a life that's fuller and more abundant and more prosperous and more useful. He wants to take your past of doubts that hold you back from serving him with your whole heart and mind and soul and body. He's calling you to something bigger than yourself. That's what I think is a really neat thing. And Easter really is every Sunday because every Sunday Jesus comes and he calls us to a new life by following him. And if you don't live with a passion or a purpose, with meaning and fulfillment, then you really have not yet found all that Jesus died for. Let me ask you a few questions tonight. What would it take for you to trust him in faith in every last single area of your life? Financial, emotional, spiritual, relational, marital, on and on and on. I mean, even Luther said the last thing converted into man is his wallet. I mean, what would it take for you to believe that you honestly matter to God? What would it take for you to believe that if people do not find Jesus on this earth, the only thing they have facing them is hell? I mean, what would it take for you to believe that God made you so that you could be out there helping people to avoid that horrible place, but instead be in that place that God has gone ahead to prepare a place for you? I mean, what would it take for you to believe that the church is not a matter of do's and don'ts, but it's all about having a relationship with Jesus who loves you so much? I mean, what would it take for you to, to believe that God loves you just exactly the way you are, but he also loves you so much that he's, he refuses to let you stay that way? I mean, what would it take for you to believe that he wants to take you further in your disciple walk than you've ever been before instead of just kind of sitting there and letting you stagnate like maybe some of you have for many years? I mean, what would it take for you to believe that there's more for you than just coming week after week, kind of festering with some sort of a critical nature and judging about what happens in a worship service and sitting back and hope that you can somehow get entertained? I mean, what would it take for you to believe that you're more, than a, more of a doubting Thomas, perhaps, than you are a following Thomas? I've read these questions to myself I bet 20 times in the last couple of days. And I tell you, some of them are pretty pointed. And that's why today, tonight, I'm calling you. I'm calling all of us. I'm calling myself to a deeper walk with Jesus. I'm calling every last one of us to step up, if you will, in faith. To trust his word on all levels. To take him at his word. I just got back from teaching at the largest maximum security prison about a month ago. And one of the things I keep reminding these men down there is when you work the word, the word will work you and you will never, ever be the same again. See, the Lord is calling you to fall in love with him. And he's calling you to do all you can for as long as you can to help other people fall in love with him. The Bible tells us that where the river flows, everything will live. And Jesus is asking you to get in that stream and help spread that flow of his love so that other people can find life as well.
I guess I could ask, are you alive? Do you have that kind of life? Do you need that kind of life? Do you want that kind of life? All I'm doing, friends, is calling us to step out and embrace by faith the life that Jesus gives to those people who really know him well. Will you tonight believe and trust him to help with your unbelief? Verse 29 says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May God God grant this for Jesus' sake. Amen.